Good evening. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Gatecast. This evening, we are going to be talking about the 1994 Stargate movie with two guests, Andrew from America and Brad from Australia. Good evening, guys. Good afternoon. How's it going? Not bad. Good morning. <laughs> yes, yeah, the beauty of uh, global podcasting. And Skype seems to be behaving itself. I hope I haven't jinxed it. But uh, nope, it's still working. We're good. I had to just <laughs> check the timer there. <laughs> you never know these days. Mm, true. Right, the format for this episode is going to be a little different. We're not going to be doing a standard commentary track. We are going to do a general discussion about the movie. Roughly chapter by chapter, although we all are watching different sources, DVD, Blu-rays of different chapter lengths, but we are going to be watching, or at least talking about, the extended cut, which has a runtime of roughly about two hours, ten minutes, give or take. Pretty uh, long running by today's standards. Yep. I don't know. Quite rare these days for even a Marvel film to be under two hours. That's true. The two recent DC movies have both had extended cut releases. Yeah, but that's DC. <laughs> <laughs> And actually kind of short by, say, like Peter Jackson standards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everything I took out of the movie has made another movie. Yeah. <laughs> Three hours in the theatrical version, four in the extended. <laughs> yeah. Made it a point not to watch the extended versions of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Really? No, I'm happy with the theatrical. Hmm. I remember being like, after I watched the, uh, the Fellowship at the Ring uh, in the theaters, my mom and I were both big Tolkien fans, so we went and saw all of all of them in the theaters. But after the first one, I learned not to drink a large drink during those films <laughs> because I was ready to explode by the end of them. But I was not going to leave the theater. Yeah, and those guys over at Minute by Minute are doing the Lord of the Rings trilogy too, so there's, Ooh. <laughs> there's about 1,200 episodes there. <laughs> wow. I'm listening currently to uh, the Star Wars Minute, Phantom Menace. And the yep. airport minute. Airport minute, I'm watching one episode per day because I'm current with that. But Star Wars minute, I let them finish a movie. Then I put it, listen to it on my commute to and from work. Yeah. It's a great way to do a podcast. But like they said, they keep releasing one, one episode every day. You, you know, you never really wish you catch up. It still keeps coming. Mm. <laughs> anyway, that's not for us. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Right then. Stargate, the 1994 theatrical feature. It premiered in America, October the 28th. Uh, we got it in the UK January the 6th and in Australia February the 16th. The movie opens with a very traditional black screen and white writing and then goes into the rather elaborate slow motion coverage of uh, an Egyptian sarcophagus or tomb. I suppose before we get into that, just watching the movie as it is, can we do it with ignoring 17 years of TV that follows? Like there's obviously the Jafar later and characters like that that aren't going to be named or sort of gone deeper into into the TV series as the mythology and that that we're going to see. Can we ignore 17 years of TV? We've got to. <laughs> you you kind of have to, yeah. yeah. Although, when I was making my notes, I was including SG-1 notations. Oh, okay. Where storylines could be crossed over, you know, uh, death gliders instead of whatever they wanted to call them. Abydos, of course, in the planet didn't have a name in the movie, did it? No. It might be interesting for someone to actually come to Stargate as their first watch of the franchise before watching any of the TV series and see what they think. But I do think the movie stands alone. Back in the day, it had an initial budget of $25 million. That's how they got on the drawing board. Fortunately, uh, halfway through, they, they said, well, we need a little bit more money. So the budget is estimated to have been between 51 and $55 million. <laughs> a lot in those days, but incredibly low these days. 
they only needed twice the budget, they thought. <laughs> oh, the Dean or Roland was saying that. The guy they got to finance the movie said, you know, you could okay budgets of up to $25 million. And they said, oh, that's perfect. Our movie will cost $25 million. <laughs> the beauty of is when you make enough of the movie and show it to the producers and they say, yeah, we'll give you the extra money because it looks that good. Yeah. It's probably doing okay. All right, well, back to the uh, opening titles. The uh, the score, straight up here, intro itself, we lose, depending on your DVD release by season two of SG1. But we also get... Don't know, I can't remember what you call it. Like the uh, the choir, sort of similar to what we get later with the Ori. Yeah. For all the Ra-centric score points, so it was good to hear that. Yeah, David Arnold did the uh, theatrical score for the movie. Absolutely stunning score. Yes, Roland believes it's his best theatrical score he's ever composed. Included parts of it in the next one, but <laughs> for Independence Day. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good score. I've been following soundtracks and scores a lot more closely Listen to a couple of podcasts that feature them as well. And some of the little bits of information you learn. Now, you've heard existing soundtracks used in trailers and whatnot, you know, as placeholder music. Mm -hmm. And how often it is that the producer will listen to a piece of placeholder music and then say to the composer, I want something like this. And that's why he says soundtracks mm -hmm. tend to sound the same these days. Yeah, it's gotten yeah. very homogenized yeah. because of that. Watched uh, the new Independence Day the other day, and that was severely lacking in score. Don't think I'll be watching that movie again. Yeah, once was good for me. I mean, it's one of the reasons that Stargate reboot ain't gonna happen. Mm -hmm. If they failed, capitalize on ID four, then how are they gonna make Stargate work? Yeah, I was. I got some notes to talk about this at the end. If we want to keep on going there or keep on going here. So North Africa, eight thousand BC. One of the main scenes they cut from the uh, theatrical cut, which I suppose is understandable since we get the pretty much the same thing later on when Daniel's explaining Ra's backstory. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's something that is not necessary for for understanding the film, so I understand why they, they may have cut it for time, but, you know, it's a nice little setup, especially because then you go from 8000 BC to Giza and then present day, so it's a nice little transition there. Yeah, I never never realised or never put two and two together back in the day that that boy was Ra. Did you? The makeup and <laughs> they look so much different. I never put it together until you actually see Daniel's explanation later on. Oh, right. Yeah, an early appearance for Jay Davidson. The story is that he really wasn't interested in doing any more acting after the crying game. So when his agent was approached to make the movie, he basically said, Give me a million dollars. Never expecting that they'd agree. Okay. <laughs> he signed on with the one little checkbox. He refused to take his nipple rings out. Oh. That's why his chest is almost always covered. And that's why I thought it was a girl character. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> but then we uh, we head off to Egypt, 1928, and the dig site. Great opening first shot. The digital composite. Part of it was the Yuma Desert in Arizona. The yep. part where the actual footage of the plateau and the pyramids in Giza and the riverboat that was, you know, composited in. And for the time, that looks brilliant. Mm. It really does. Even now, it looks good. Yeah, it's a great looking shot all the way around. I mean, the cinematography in this film all the way through is, is fantastic. I don't know. It feels more epic than a lot of films that try to feel epic now. Yeah. Because there's so much CG now so much reliance on CG now that I, I think they did a lot of practical and compositing work with this that just gives it a, a much grander scope and feel to it. 
Yeah. Yeah, use of miniatures. I love love how they use miniatures. I suppose Lord of the Rings took that to the maximum, but um, they do a lot of good work in it. Well, again, it's when you're looking at movies these days, even Roland said that if you can do it real, if you can do it practical, you should do it. Mm-hmm. Doing in-camera tricks as opposed to uh, CGI effects. Obviously, they were limited to what they could do CGI-wise. Yeah. When you're shooting on location, they've got a huge area of humour they dedicated to the shoot. They constructed the dig based on photographs from dig sites from Egypt. We get introduced to young Catherine Langford and her father. Kelly Vint plays Catherine and Eric Holland plays uh, Professor Langford. Get the first glimpse of a piece of golden jewellery that becomes very important in the movie. <laughs> that she which... just deals. I know. She's... <laughs> Even back then, that would be worth a fortune. Dare I say it, it belongs in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> and and we get one of the most iconic shots of Stargate, both on TV and the big screen, the raising of the Stargate. Mm-hmm. Mm. When they did it in SG-1, the episode Memento, it looked fantastic then. Pure yep. homage to the movie. Great tracking shot when uh, Dr. Lundford pulls up in the Jeep or the car. The camera sort of, as he gets out and goes all the way through to dig, to the cover stones and then to the gate itself. And the cover stones are a good 100, 200 metres away from the gate. Did they take them off and move them, or is that where they found them? Well, cover stones, I assume they moved them. Yeah. Yeah, we see no scripture or no documentation to say that the gate needs to be upright to see what's under it. Like, mm-hmm. they have to rise it to see the uh, helmet, but Jafar crushed underneath it. Well, I'm sure at some point one of the uh, workers saying, we could roll this, you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I suppose there was um, there was the pictures on Abydos that show the gate upright too, so there'd have to be some sort of imagery or even on the cover zones themselves. Yeah, they could be, yeah. little side shot. But we're not really going to question that too much because I think this is one of the extended features where we see what's buried underneath the Stargate. Yeah, true. We never see what's actually under it. The TV series had to manipulate a little, work around for their story to work. Mm. How the actual gate functions and what happens when you get rematerialised a few microns above the event horizon. Yeah, well, there's no hole for the... uh wish to blow a hole for a ground. They had to retcon a bit of that stuff. I think that's always the case. You've got to be impressed. I remember at the time when I watched Stargate, you know, when it finished and next day at work, would you think going to make another one? I said, no, the story's done. And then a few years later, Stargate SG-1, Showtime, and I think it was Sky 1 over here. And all of a sudden it starts again. You think, oh, yeah. And it's easy to forget creativity that has to go on in somebody's mind to make the leap a, we can tell a story based on this movie and we can change a few things to make it work. Mm-hmm. There is a drop line a little bit later. They did leave a hole to do something else that I'd never picked up before, so I'll bring that up when we get to it. Okay then. Shall we move on to present day? <laughs> present day 1994. <laughs> Ribbon raining. <laughs> yes, the Park Plaza Hotel in Los Angeles was the location for this shoot. Again, not a science stage, practical location. If you can get the rights to film there... Tens of thousands of dollars worth of production value. Mm. And we meet a much older Catherine Lamford, played by Vivica Lindfors, who unfortunately passed away the year after this movie was released. Oh, well. Swedish actress. Was this her last film? I'd imagine... Ah, no, it wasn't. She also worked on Last Summer in the Hamptons and Run for Cover hmm. in 1995. So, busy to the end. I suppose her role wasn't that big. A few scenes at the start... The only note I've got for this segment is uh, academics are assholes. Um, yeah. Just the whole, yeah, not believing his theory. Like, yes, okay, he hasn't got a lot to back it up, but I'm sure they all have a lot of theories themselves that they want others to believe. I mean, you look at the crowd, the room's full. 
Yeah. Do you think they've gone there just for a laugh or because it's raining outside? Yeah. One shot I did like about it is the professor right at the end, the last professor. Yeah. <laughs> he was always always like, because you just sat there like, I was really interested in this. And Daniel actually steps down and starts talking directly to him. Yeah. I took him as like the uh, the dean or the uh, the one in charge of the room to say like, you've yeah, you, you made me do this when no one wanted to listen in the first place. <laughs> so he was played by Roger Till. He passed in 2002. And again, we're looking at the the scope of this movie. Vivica was Swedish. The professor was French. The production, well, is all over the place. Main producer, Mario Kassa. He was born in Beirut. Roland, of course. I think Roland's German. German, yep. It is literally a full international p- production. They were saying that Mario pioneered this multi-region funding method. Stargate actually benefited from taking cash from all over the place to make it work. Four major production houses, Canal Plus, the French, obviously, company, Centropolis, MGM, and Carol Co. Mario, of course, went on to produce Terminator 2, Cliffhanger, Terminator 3, and the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Very well-respected man in the industry. Unfortunately, he also was tied to a couple of movies which actually ended up bankrupting Carolco. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so ups and downs, shall we say. You win some, you lose some. Yes, indeed. Yeah, there's some high points there. Daniel solemnly walks out of the building. He's chucking it down with Ray, and he's got his, his few meagre possessions in a suitcase too. And he's approached by an Air Force officer who invites him into a car to meet Catherine Langford. Shortest job interview ever. <laughs> Made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Mm-hmm. This is a job. You've got nothing else to do. You know, you've got debts, nowhere to live. There's a plane ticket. Yeah, yep. you don't generally turn things down when you're at that point in life. No. <laughs> no he's not a young man, is he? You know, he's uh, at this point, he really hasn't got anywhere to go. Mm-hmm. We learn that he had foster parents, so that confirms that his parents died, as as in the TV series. Right. Yeah, I was always unsure why that was the question. Are these your parents sort of, I don't know if it was hinting at something that was going to come later, or it was changed, or... And sort of, if you know he's Daniel Jackson, you've got his details. How's are these your parents? The one that uh, confirms you're talking to the right person. It may be. It underlines the fact that he's got no ties to Earth. Ah, okay. Yep. yep. Right. Ah, good point. It makes it easy for him to walk away. Yep. But of course, they don't mention if they're still alive or anything. Whether it was a good relationship. At the time when Jack comes into it, he doesn't exactly have a whole lot to uh, to stick around on Earth for. Yeah. We might as well jump straight to that scene then. Uh, we're introduced to uh, Colonel Jack O'Neill. Miss O'Neill is your husband home. Yes, we're already inside. I think he'd ask that before they get let inside. You know, I mean, you know, we meet Jack. He's suicidal. His, you know, his son's died. You know, in a sense that he's the one they're going to send to make sure that the job gets done no matter what. Yeah. Um, so even if it turns into a suicide mission, he was already there. He was picked specifically, as we come to General West, for this job, who obviously was, who knew Jack, obviously knew what had happened. He probably understood what the man was going through. He knew his status of his marriage. You'd think it may be easier to pick someone who wasn't married and with no ties. But again, must be a connection there that they didn't decide to emphasise. Introduced to Jack, he's sitting in his son's bedroom, Tyler, not Charlie. They changed the character's name. That was interesting. Hmm. I wonder if that was something in the licensing deal that, you know, they licensed them certain names like Daniel Jackson, Jack O'Neill, but not others. Well, has the 1L and 2L ever really been explained? No. Nope. And also the the changing of Charé's name 
and other elements like that. It, it's yeah, it's interesting. Always pronounce it the same though. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah O'Neill is played by Cecile Hoffman in the TV series Harley Jane Kozak. This scene was one of the first shots because Kurt had long hair. They decided that uh, it would be it wouldn't look right if they put a wig on him afterwards. And they want they wanted the impact of the uh, bus cut when he finally got back into uniform. Mm-hmm. Kurt Russell, I love him from the, the stuff he'd done in late eighties and nineties. Good to see him here in another another one of these sort of sci-fi stuff he'd done. Soldier and that, and um, of course, Escape in... from L.A. and Escape from New York. Oh yes, yes, definitely a Snake Plissken fan. <laughs> It's just not one of the more popular action heroes, but um, he's definitely a good one. Mm-hmm. Well, I liked him in Overboard. Yeah, I mean, he's one <laughs> of those few that can can really easily go back and forth between, you know, the stoic action hero and the and the goofy comedy lead. Oh, he's got he sort of cracks his shell a little bit here later on. He gets that comedy starts to come out a bit, but yeah, he definitely definitely has that ability to go back and forth quite easily. Looking through his ah, there we go. This is the first time I was aware of Kurt Russell. Mainly because years later, I remembered him. Not because I knew who he was at the time. A TV series in the mid-70s called The Quest. Hmm. Hmm. I haven't heard of that one. I think he was a boy who got captured by Indians and then met up with his brother years later and they went looking for the sister. Something like that. Hmm. Well, check that out. It's weird, isn't it? How something can stick in your mind from decades. But I can't remember seeing Stargate at the movie theatre. I'm sure I did. Uh, one of my friends at high school handed me a VHS tape and uh, said, you've got to watch this, and I watched it, and that was history. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do take pride in the fact that when I bought the movie on Laserdisc, I blew a speaker up. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> the volume was reasonably loud. You heard, all, all of a sudden, you heard some rattling coming from a speaker, which you're thinking, <laughs> that's the wrong sort of vibration, then. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so, Jack has been reactivated by General West reactivated so he must have been just on stress leave or something something like that mm-hmm. obviously you would be wouldn't you? you probably wouldn't want somebody mm, i don't know really it could potentially be a medical discharge as well yeah yeah probably saying we put you on the activated list but obviously uh, national guard you brought up for that right reactivated just like uh bones was in the motion picture Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> reactivation <laughs> clause in the small print and not very happy about it <laughs> Yes, and we get a little bit of exposition from the two officers in the car who explains why his, you know, his kid got shot with his own gun. Basically covers everything you need to know about uh, that scene. Right, then we approach this huge underground complex, which, funnily enough, looks remarkably like Cheyenne Mountain, but it's called Creek Mountain. And it needs a bit of a bit of budget increase. <laughs> I think there's just a, uh, a concrete facade stuck against a rock wall. <laughs> I wondered at the time if they hadn't got the you know permission to actually film outside of there. That's why they changed the name as well. Yeah. I mean, could it be that Cheyenne Mountain is a little bit more hot of a military installation than later on in the television series? Well, it was still NORAD in 94, 93 when it was filming. Right, so, right. That's yeah. what, so that's what I'm thinking is that they're just like, yeah, you're not bringing cameras around here. We are, of course, introduced to Kowalski in this scene, mm-hmm. played by John Dial. I was certain I recognised the face from Stargate SG-1, but he never actually appeared in that. Oh, okay. Jay Akavone played Kowalski in the series. He's a very familiar name and uh, face in the TV industry. Yep. Level 28, so that's a <laughs> raise mm-hmm. a smile. Something shouldn't change. And we get the SGC set. A little bit different. Close enough. Yeah. It's interesting to compare 
the look of sets which are supposed to be the same, but obviously made on budgets remarkably different. Difference is the ramp for the gate. In the series, it's sort of a long ramp with two steps at the bottom, where this one's sort of a, a longish ramp, and it's got two flights of stairs at the end. you got to climb up onto the ramp to get going, so... Got Richard Kind in here, who also yes. uh, showed up in an unrelated role later on in, in the Stargate franchise. Yep, Richard plays uh, Dr. Gary Mayers, also with his companion, Dr. Barbara Shaw, played by Ray Allen. They've been doing the translation work for at least two years. Yeah. <laughs> and then Daniel waltzes in yeah. and is crossing stuff out. I suppose that's one of the problems with translating work. You know, you reference material, and that may be referenced from another reference book, from another reference book. Yeah. And there's no guarantee that the first one, the original work, was accurate. My issue with it is, do any of those words translate to million? Or, like, was million around back then? Or Stargate, was that a word back then? Wouldn't it be? Shepai? Good point. But that's nitpicking. Of course, we needed to... <laughs> Yeah, because Chaparai didn't come until the TV series. And that was more the Gould language too, not not an English word for it. So They had consultant, Dr. Stuart Smith, who did all the work on the Egyptian language and the hieroglyphs. They are based on proper language and hieroglyphs. Hieroglyphic. <laughs> I've said it once, why can't I say it again? You only get one. Yeah, only get one. They are based on actual true, accurate depictions of the pictographs, but obviously twisted a little can't use real pictographs otherwise people are complaining that that's not the translation but it is remarkable how daniel just walks up gets a piece of chalk no that's wrong that's wrong sealed buried for all time door to heaven if they'd used stairway to heaven i'd have cried (laughs) (laughs) and just writes in no stargate yeah constellation glyphs actually kind of remind me of the vulcan language in star trek yeah i can see that yeah I suppose there's only so much you can do creating within a certain framework. You've got to make it so it looks like it's a written language to us, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you try to, I mean, the ancient language goes a little too far to be recognisable as a language. Right. Whereas, in many ways, hieroglyphics, well, hey, do look like they're telling a story. They're not words, obviously, but there seems mm-hmm. to be a pattern that the human mind maybe recognises easier. And you, I think whenever you try to make up a language, you, that's what you've got to do. You've got to leave enough there that people can recognise, say, that's the language. I don't understand it, but I know it's a language. Yeah. They're having a nice chat. Daniel's been informed of some of the secrets, and obviously not the big one yet. And uh, Colonel O'Neill walks in. Oh, hey, shut up. Stop telling the civilians all this critical information. <laughs> it's interesting. He's always, oh, Kurt Russell, it's either he's always got long hair or the buzz cut. There's never, <laughs> there's never an in-between. Yeah. yeah. You never just see him with, like, you know, a business cut. Yeah. Yeah, but make a mention of another device that was found, and uh, he says that's classified. Isn't this already a classified project? Beyond classified. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you feel like if they're even at that installation, they've been vetted and have a, a level of clearance. Yeah. I think the fact that Daniel hasn't at this point, he's got limited access. What is behind door A? You, you're not allowed to know that yet. Yeah. We hear a little bit of Daniel on his recording, just before he discovers the uh, the constellation to solve his puzzle. Going on about not being paid <laughs> as he gets results. <laughs> I'm quite amusing, really, for the US Air Force. Never getting paid. Yeah, we're not going to give you a salary because we don't know how long you're going to be here. But if you solve it, we'll pay you. He's got bed and board. He's doing all right. Yeah. This whole set was built on the Spruce Goose hangar, which has been converted into a sand stage. Hmm. The only building tall enough to actually hold these sets. Saves knocking down a huge historical building, convert it to its use. Hollywood is always looking for large sound stages, even in, even in this day where green screens are taking hold to do everything. 
Right, we move on now and we see basically a load of cars approaching Creek Mountain. And I thought these would all be big black SUVs these days. Mm -hmm. Not sedans. There's no way high-ranking military personnel will be driving around in sedans. The next scene, we meet General West, played by Leon Rippey. Great actor, is. He definitely has the stern general act down. No nonsense. Yeah, they made a joke that uh, Leon actually picked how he looked, and they were quite amused by his choice of moustache. <laughs> <laughs> it is a tad short. <laughs> Roland said, you know, he, he got to call him Adolf on set. <laughs> I assume just Adolf. I mean, you can, you can let that go, because that is a proper German name, Austrian name or whatever. You know, the general does in some scenes look a little suspect. Yeah, I also uh, find it kind of interesting how this movie is a little bit dated in the fact that you've got Kurt Russell lighting up a cigarette. Whereas One you almost never see people smoking mm. in film and TV anymore, unless they're bad guys or are meant to portray uh, a more working class or low income mm. kind of demographic. The, the atmosphere, like cigarette smoke hanging in the air with all the military hierarchy hanging around the table, it's sort of, you don't see that anymore, and it's sort of... Interestingly enough, in like in DS9, when they did the episode Little Green Men, if you've seen it, yeah, or, uh, they end up going back in time to like the, I don't know, the 30s or 40s. They showed the military, and they specifically had everybody smoke to create that atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. They buy poison. <laughs> Interesting as well. If you look at the layout of the base, that's the gate room. Viewing area above it? Yeah. Barrier comes down, doesn't it? Yeah. That little window and how it changed for the actual TV series became actually much bigger. Which, why would you need that in a missile silo? But anyway. Maintenance. <laughs> small windows, small yeah. doors. <laughs> yeah. Big escape hatches, just in case. Seeing Daniel drawing on the screen and desperately hoping it's not a Sharpie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, actually gets to explain his, uh, his solution, his uh, constellations. Seven points to charter course. That glyph is on the device. You know, what device? We get the look from Jack to the general, which makes you wonder who's in charge. Yeah. The general may be in charge of the base, but Jack's in charge of this project. He just gives a, a little wave of the hand. The slider panel comes down, and we get the full view of the Stargate for the first time. Apart from the desert, but not under ideal conditions. Mm. And it was originally painted black. And then they realised it didn't look very good, so they you know, painted it silver with all the highlights on it. <laughs> Definitely a good decision. Yeah. That sort of plot aside, how does no one notice the seven Chevron just sitting down there at the bottom of the, the list of six? That's one of the big issues, this whole sequence, isn't it? Mm. It's not as if they they jump from, okay, we've got a good idea what these symbols are now, to, oh, yeah, we've already dialed six symbols. <laughs> Nothing happens. What? <laughs> Only so many other symbols to dial after that one. Trial and error, you'll figure it out. Well, that's it. you got 39 chances. Yeah. That's one right. thing I liked about the TV episode where we saw, you know, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Paul McGillian, when he was playing Ernest, young Ernest, oh, went yeah. through in the diving suit. They were experimenting back then. They figured out that it was a portal to something. That I would have liked some experimentation, trying to figure out, or at least exposition. We figured out it's some sort of device for creating a, a wormhole, a gravity field. We're not exactly sure what, though. Well, that's it. They seem to know a lot about an active wormhole, even though they've never had it open before. Yeah. How the hell did they get that mouth up the stairs? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Now, I'm but, guessing it is it is sort of based off one of them bomb disposal robots, so it probably has some ability to climb, but yeah, it's a, it's a pretty steep staircase to go yeah. up. The design is used in nuclear power stations. Oh, okay. Maintenance inside the reactor core. 
that is reused for SG one too, isn't it? It looks identical to what we get mm. early seasons. Design wise, just the arm, yeah, the arm, the tracks. Maybe we get a better camera. The SG one map is very, 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 very basic. Yeah. Which like keeps on breaking on them. They've lost who knows how many of them. <laughs> yeah, we can't get it back now. Oh, not to worry. We'll, we'll just order another half dozen. And this is why the U.S. military budget is so high. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the uh, the kawush for this Stargate as well. This is the granddaddy of them all. Yeah. And it truly does look spectacular. Mm-hmm. Practical. Yep. Mm, that is remarkable. He basically said a glass tunnel, water revolving very fast, blowing air bubbles through it drawing the water out to actually juice the tunnel. Truly is spectacular on the screen. It still holds up well because it's a practical effect. Not mm-hmm. And the only time they used CGI was when the actual event horizon had formed and it was vertical. That's when the water changed to CGI. But you still got a nice ripple. you can still got like the reflection. Yeah. Looked like a silver puddle of water, unlike later on where we don't get any of that in the series. Again, probably TV budget. Well, the joke was every time that Daniel or Jack touched the puddle, it cost them five thousand dollars. <laughs> that little ripple. Another little not hiccup. You can't you can't criticize the movie for anything, any decision they made because SU one changed the story and the specifics. But the wormhole went to the helium galaxy. Mm. How are they tracking that? I have no idea. If it, if they said yeah. it, it went to Andromeda, I'd be impressed. That got retconned in SG one as well, in that they made it within our own galaxy, rather than... Which makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it allowed them to later on, you know, do the 8th Chevron for Intergalactic. And they also have a weird droid voice, a lot of the uh, little devices. And even when it's tracking, you hear this droid voice. It's well, a little get... Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when we get on onto Abydos later, it's sort of really Star Wars. But um, how's it being tracked? One of the technicians says there's a small moon or planet there. How? <laughs> and yeah, do we, we, do we get... even have the Hubble at this point? Yeah. If it's in another galaxy, that's some pinpointing right there. And we get General West. Freeze and enhance. The pictures the probe sends back. I'll give them this one, because this is compressed data. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's coming back. And it might be the first processing gave you a basic image, give it another processing run, then you're pulling out the data that is embedded in the image. And it does clear up. It clears up, not not focused at like zoom. It doesn't zoom in, it just clears the image, so yeah. This isn't CSI and traffic cams. <laughs> we get another extended scene here as well, where we see Jack going into this secure location. We get a close-up of what they found under the gate in Giza. Mm. Very squished. Yeah, pancake. Yeah, it looks painful. Yeah. Egyptology terms, that image would oh. be a jackal, wouldn't it? Yeah, so Anubis... Jackal was his thing, wasn't it? Well, that would make sense given what we learn later in the movie. Yeah. I can understand why they removed that. It just looked weird. And I suppose it sort of just keeps that mystery going of there is something out there we haven't seen yet. We'll get to it, but uh, yeah. Catherine makes another visit with Daniel. She gives him the Eye of Ra, which he picked up, appropriated from her father's dig. Gives it to Daniel, bring him luck. What a fortunate coincidence (laughs) that was. (laughs) The whole movie revolves around this amulet when you think about it. Yeah, we never see it opened. I don't think it does. Suppose they might not have had the hinge technology back then. <laughs> yeah, that was totally beyond the intergalactic space traveller. Yeah. <laughs> we get introduced to uh, to Daniel's famous allergies. Most inconvenient time. I mean, the Jack already doesn't like Daniel. He's full of shit or something. 
Yeah, and walks away. And he's not a very quiet voice either. Yeah, Jack doesn't do subtle very well. No. We do meet some of the unit, the soldiers that are going with them. Not everybody is credited. Lieutenant Freddy, Brown, Freeman, Riley, Kowalski and Porrow. Lieutenant Ferretti, you will recognise as French Stewart from Third Rock from the Sun and Stargate Universe. Brown is played by Derek Webster, very familiar face on... Oh, what was he in last night? Last night I saw him again, IMDb. Oh yeah, NCIS, New Orleans. And we get the approach to the Stargate, which was all unscripted. Director saying, said all the cast, just walk up to the gate, do what feels comfortable for you and walk through. And, uh, you know, the CGI guys will take care of everything else. You saw Jack walk up, a little indecisive, then grit his teeth and step through. Yeah, he's all tense. Yeah, and Daniel, James Spader, he just he just went with it, looking at it with wonder and joy, a little bit of apprehension before he stepped through. But this is a guy, this is a kid whose Christmas has come all at once. And there's $5,000. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I did like the fact that, that he showed you the other side of the event horizon. When he put his face into it, yeah. Yeah, it was calm, it was a void before it pulled him through. It was like sticking your face into water. Yeah, it was really, wasn't it? <laughs> For how they achieved the effect. And we get molecular deconstruction. They've never had the gate open, but they've made all these little computer programs and that to show what happens when the gate is open. Yeah, like you said, it's as if they knew exactly what it did. Just yeah. not quite how to get it to activate. Right. They know what they don't they know what it does, they just don't know how to turn it on. Yeah. They found a reference manual in one of the the guards' pockets who got squished. And it was remarkably intact. Uh, but I suppose we've got, we've got to let them have it. At some point, every movie's got to take shortcuts and hope the audience follows along with them. Well, if it got bogged down for another half an hour of techno babble and, okay, we got it to work, let's, what's it do, what's all this other stuff, and probably, yeah, would probably be complaining about it. Right, we get the rather beautiful gate transition sequence. Not quite as extreme as something from Kubrick. Hmm. Another effect they passed on to the series. They didn't want to go over the top, but the use of the music and the sound cues during the kind of the wormhole travel, that's what they believe made it work. Like you were passing by, maybe not planets, but sound sources as well. Be the background noise of the universe or radio transmissions from planets as you flew past at God knows what sort of speed. And we get the uh, original ice crystal formation on the people that travel through the gate, which they started off with SG-1 and suddenly quite quickly decided that this is a waste of time. And probably expensive. Yes. Here in a, a dark room, all they've got to light this particular set was these ridiculously industrial flares. Big flares. All the actors were a little worried about. <laughs> More so for the smoke they'd be given off. Yes, I'd imagine it's fairly toxic as well. Yeah. yeah. Only for the carbon monoxide. I mean... Those are what, magnesium flares? They burn out pretty quickly, so I'd assume it would be some sort of huge chemical reaction. Yeah, just all the slag and had it sort of bitten off as they're burning too. It's no surprise that there are still serious accidents on movie sets. Even with all the insurance and the liability, there are times they still use some pretty dangerous things. <laughs> Lining up to the insurance meeting. Okay, we're going to light the scene. We've got some industrial flares. <laughs> and the insurance guy's thinking, hmm, can't they take torches? <laughs> One of those new LED torches. They really work well. Yeah. They haven't been invented yet. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Jurassic Park, the year later, you got those massive torches with the big 9-volt battery stuck to the bottom of them. Just, they light up the area pretty well. Well, that was it. I mean, it's 94. They've got mag lights, right? Well, yeah. the X-Files, they had fantastic torches. I'm pretty sure Jack's gun's got a light on the bottom of it too. <laughs> yeah. Again, they're in uh, one of the standing sets, all practical. Back then, there was no 
significant use of green screen. So the spruce goose hanger again plays home to this set. This is the point where they start walking all between these columns towards the light. They see outside the door a huge stretch of desert and they walk outside and they turn around. Pyramid. A seven-story construction. That building is real. They built it and then they composited in the pyramid. That's insane. It is, isn't it? Yeah. There's that budget doubling. <laughs> well, yeah. When you get close to it, you know it's real. Oh, yeah. Even when later on. It has that feel of weight and depth to it that CGI doesn't, just doesn't. Even right. good CGI. Good green screening. Texture of it. Yeah. Yeah. And later they can have explosions go off near it and it's not really damaging the set. The only issue they had was actually bringing all the construction equipment into the desert because it's surrounded by sand dunes. And they were lucky yeah. that the US Army got this material that they can lay on sand, water it down, and it kind of bonds all the sand to it and produces a very hard surface for about 12 hours. Water it down okay. again, it does it again. Wow. They were able to bring all the construction equipment in, build this huge structure, take all the construction equipment out, let the wind do its job to clean the sand dunes off, and you've got a pristine filming location. Was this humour again? Yes. I wonder if there's some sort of colour filter for that sand, because that seems to be very yellow from what I know of American deserts to be. It could be, I don't know. The only trouble they did have, Stargate if you want to have had the same, repeatedly filming on sand, you had to go covering all your tracks to make it look nice yeah. and pristine sand all the time. They had a gang of workers with brushes to sweep it all away all the time, and they said it just didn't look right. Wind machines worked pretty good. They were fortunate one evening, they had a sandstorm, which really made it look spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> so much so that Dean grabbed a camera and went out and filmed it. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, they actually use it in the movie. Yeah. So we get all the soldiers unpacking this kit. For some reason, they've got a satellite dish. I didn't see him bring a satellite. Yeah. Is that just for planetary communications? We see him talking through it later. <laughs> it looks like a satellite dish. It looks like it's a focused dish, you know, offset focused dish. So it's got to be pointing at something. Yeah. If it were radio, you just have a great big antenna, you know, a little helium balloon, pull up, uh, so yeah, extend your range or something, but not a sad dish. Yeah, there's no way that's reaching back to home. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get the Monday Night Football? Nope, unfortunately not. <laughs> oh, we forgot, of course, three moons. Yeah, including our own. <laughs> <laughs> Designed to use stock footage of the other. It's public domain, I'd hope it is anyway. Daniel sneezing once again, and the whole allergies while travelling. I understand on Earth where there's flora, on a desert planet... Would you still be getting allergies from stuff in the air? It could be allergic to fatigues, the material in the fatigues. Oh, okay, yeah. I suppose there would be dust in the air too, being a desert planet. Unfortunately, Jack is ready to go back. He's done his recon. Right, job done. We're not staying long. Let's go back straight away. The guys have oddly unpacked. Mm. <laughs> and unfortunately, Daniel... Oh, no. Uh, let's go exploring. This is fantastic. This this is an exact copy of the, you know, the... What's it called? The Great Pyramid, isn't it? At Giza. Exact copy, you know. Exactly. He hasn't measured it. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. I've been there actually doing a bit of trigonometry, and we'll <laughs> let it pass. And then, of course, he breaks the news. Well, <laughs> the Earth address isn't on the gate, it isn't on the walls. We can't dial back. But it must be here somewhere. Jack is not happy. He said you can get us home, and you can't. Jack decides to start preparations for his secret mission. He goes down back into the pyramid, to the MAUP, or the remote vehicle. It's probably too big to call the MAUP in SG-1 terms, opens up a compartment, see a suspicious cylindrical device with a little, looks like a countdown timer, flashy buttons and all sorts. 
and it all becomes clear why he was chosen for this mission. Mm, considering it all comes out of the same compartment, you'd think it would already be prepared, put the uh, timing or the trigger mechanism in it. It would be easier, wouldn't it? Especially if you're sort of time-sensitive. Well, yeah, if, if they came through the gate being surrounded by an enemy, you'd think Jack would carry the trigger with him and the bomb would be ready, ready yeah. to go. Just hold on, guys. I just need to put this together. Yeah. How sensitive is it? If it passes through this uh, strange wormhole device, will it explode? Hmm. Ferretti, in particular, is not very happy with Daniel. In fact, I can't quite understand these guys. Daniel is the brains. He is the only one that's going to get them back. So he, they pick up his suitcase of books and just throw it into the <laughs> desert. Books he may need to help him get them back. Yeah. I think they're playing Did... off the meathead military guy probe where they're not exactly thinking that far ahead. I can understand why they're angry, but that did seem like they are going, like you say, going for the cliche rather than something a little more subtle. Right. But Daniel seems happy enough, you know, he's on an alien planet looking at a sodding great big pyramid. A desert planet eating a chocolate bar. Yes. <laughs> that was in his pocket. <laughs> well, yeah, that's it. He starts looking through his pockets and just looking at things and throwing them away. I don't, I haven't got a clue what that is. I'm looking for sunscreen, yeah. <laughs> and he notices the tracks leading away into the desert. And off he goes. Yes, this poor horse. <laughs> Clydesdale horse, dressed up to be a mastage, an alien beast of burden, designed by Patrick Totopoulos and voiced by Frank Welker. The horse is actually carrying a head mechanism. I assume it's not metal. It's probably fiberglass or something in the middle of the desert. So can't see where he's going. Can't be exactly a happy chap, can he? Good use of animatronics there, the tongue work and all that. Yeah, and he gives him was it a Fifth Avenue bar. Yeah. which has never been sold in the UK, so I had to look it up. Made by Hershey, peanut butter and chocolate. Mm -hmm. The sugar rush, well, the horse, is, the uh, mastage is happy. <laughs> Very. This is a great sequence, made more so when you find out how they did it. Initially, the horse just runs away. You know, the, uh, the bridle, the rope tangles around Daniel's legs and drags him off. That is pretty much a practical effect. Then we get cut sequences where there's a stuntman being dragged. We get the classic little doggy. With a suit on for the long distance shots. <laughs> that is it. Dragging a puppet behind it. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> and yet it works. Yeah. Because it is real. It is a real animal doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's not a CGI creation or a man in a suit. It's an animal dressed up as something. That's true. But the running looks real. Even from long distance, it looks real. Although Daniel does get dragged a long, long way. And they do catch up with him pretty good. And hiking over yeah. them sand dunes in combat boots takes some out of you. Yeah, there's one scene there where he drops down off a bit of a bank embankment too and <laughs> fud into the ground. <laughs> He's woken by a fart. <laughs> Farts in his face. They finally catch up with him. The animal seems friendly. You know, it's not big sticky tongue, which tries to uh, domesticate it, obviously, because it's got a bridle on. So they definitely know the evidence of the pyramid one wasn't enough. There is, there is life on this planet. And they hear some new noises, look over a sand dune, and clear the great big sodding mountain range. Tens of thousands of people, it looks like, mining the mountain. Mm. 1,800 extras used for this scene. Wow. And 2,000 stick figures. <laughs> Basically, sticks of wood with clothing for the long, long, long range shots. <laughs> the CGI wasn't quite up to duplicating crowd shots. Yeah, we weren't at mass armies by then. But again, it looks good. It looks real. Mm. The perspective's right. You've got this huge, looks like a Bedouin tent just in the foreground, and the whole mine in the background. Ladders going up this mountain. You can see these masters on these ridges halfway up the mountain. And there's movement. It's not just like a matte painting. Like there's actually, you can see people climbing the ladders or 
swinging pickaxes or whatever else. Yeah. And this is where we meet Skara and Kaysouf, Alexis Cruz and Eric Avari, the two actors that carried their roles into Stargate SG-1. Mm-hmm. A nice meeting between Eric as the, uh, I assume he's the mayor of some sort of this population. Chocolate, the international sign of friendship. Huh, bunny, bunny way. <laughs> One of the greatest lines in science fiction ever. This was a choice they made. I mean, in Stargate SG-1, they fudged it. Oh, everybody speaks English. We can't do this for every episode. Here, in this movie, they had to take the time. Granted, they skipped a few steps in the process and made it so that it was easy for Daniel to eventually pick up the language because it was a derivative of ancient Egypt. But they went through the steps. We can't understand you. We can understand your gestures. We can understand your intent. Mm. He's inviting us to come along with us. How do you know that? Because he's inviting <laughs> us to come along with us. <laughs> Making gestures anybody would make. Even Jack looked at Kowalski with, are you stupid or what? And off they go back to the city. And it's big enough to be called a city. And this is one, yeah. one area where they did use a lot of composite effects and models, a little bit of CGI. The main two towers and the door, they were real. They built them. And the rest of the city is magic. As to is their food supply. A lot of people there and no food. You assume that when they actually brought them all back and sat down for the feast, those reptiles must be reasonably plentiful. <laughs> and maybe the far side of the town, there's a river. Yeah. There's got to be a river close by. No ifs or buts, there's got to be. Mm. For, this for that population, there's got to be a major water source nearby. Right. And if you've got that, then you've got crops. The whole history of Egypt is based on the Nile flooding every season, rejuvenating the soil. You know, Egypt, middle of the desert, how did a society build itself there? And that's how it happened. Every major, Nearly every major city in the world started out being close to a river and building from there. Interesting choice to, again, this was in the extended scene, have Jack firing into the ground when the sandstorm approach. Oh, that was an extended scene, was it? I can't remember seeing that before. Yeah, I got it. He's a bum. He's a bit fast fire on everyone. There must be an explanation why they hold them back and they find that out later on. It seemed out of place. Yeah. It wasn't as if everybody was pulling away and they were surrounded by angry looking villagers. People were looking up to the sky. They got agitated pretty quickly, but no one's, there's no other weapons. Like they're not grabbing spears or bow and arrows. Or yeah. It's not really threatening. It's also interesting that they've got the uh, Ra symbol covered. You'd think if he's their god, they'd have it out on permanent display or something. It was so shiny in the sunlight. <laughs> Kept blinding everybody. <laughs> That's why they covered it up. We have the armadillo chicken, I call it. Yeah, so it's an interesting creature. Again, Patrick Totopoulos did most of the design work for the movie. Made something like that look real. The design work all through the movie just find highly, I mean, not just, you know, like creature work like this and the costumes and like the level of detail on the gate and, you know, the Jaffa armor is just phenomenal. Certainly puts the TV series in its place. Oh, yeah. It's easy to see where the money was spent in the movie compared to the TV series, even though at the time the TV series was brilliant for its set design, costume design. Some of it, obviously, you know, well, well that's cardboard, that's plastic. It's, we know the uh, the armour isn't really armour, but the movie is, is a totally separate beast. It really does look incredible. At the feast, introduced to a lot of the shepherd boys, as they were come to be known. That was Gara's little mob of young men, hmm. local Mexican actors. They wanted to get actors uh, darker skinned to suit the, obviously, they were supposed to be Egyptian. Wasn't yep. practical to, to fly over Egyptian actors for the role. 
Charé makes her appearance. Well, actually, she made her appearance a little bit earlier, but we get a closer look. Mila Abital, Israeli actress. They had a huge amount of difficulty casting the role of Charé, filming before they cast her. One of the casting directors sent Roland a video of Millie. Said she was perfect. They were a bit worried. We've got to, how can we fly her over from Israel and get her into uh, Arizona quickly? Until they told her she'd already flown over a few <laughs> months earlier, looking for work in Hollywood. So they rang her agent. Her agent rang her, gave her a you know, ticket to Arizona, and next day she was on set being made up and filming. Mm, nice. Colouring suits the role perfectly. They were exceptionally pleased with how she looked, how she acted. One of those casting little miracles that happens when you really are pushed for time. Mm. It'd be so easy to pick the wrong actress and you know regret it three or four months later, looking at all the dailies and thinking it didn't really work, did it? Do they get married here <laughs> or betrothed? Because she strips off. Yeah, after the dinner. Well, basically, Kesu, if he just stands up, doesn't he, and starts shouting, you know. Mm. <laughs> Dinner's over, you know, ceremony time. Daniel gets dragged away by some of the elder women. Grub down. James Bader were a little worried about this because these seven Mexican women didn't speak a word of English between them and he wasn't quite sure how <laughs> how friendly they were going to get with these washcloths. No safe word. <laughs> this is a tricky bit in this day and age. You know, obviously, the women of of this community, marriages are arranged, my guess, by the fathers to suitable husbands. From what we see, the elder women, they're perfectly okay with this. Obviously, they probably don't know any better. Tricky. I mean, you wonder if they'd do that in this day and age without trying to circumvent it some way. Or mm. did they do that this way by making Shari obviously intelligent by the standards of this community? Or am I just... I think they also, they did a decent sidestep with, you know, Daniel going, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> and he admits he smells like a yak. They did make it plain later on that nothing happened that night. Yeah. yeah. During the curtain, the guests can assume whatever they want. But it, it certainly was interesting. She she was obviously nervous. She would have been a maid, a virgin at this time. No question about it. We do get it popped back up a few times in the series as well. So it's it's quite amusing that the movie didn't show any nudity yet. The TV series did. Yeah, yeah. But we're gonna up it a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, they they were on Showtime, so I think they they were like, well, why not? We can. Yeah, exactly. People know what they game when they subscribe to uh, our service. About this time, they had a major issue with one of the pyramid sets. There was an earthquake. Production had shut down for three weeks. A lot of the models were damaged. Oh, wow. But this was Ra's pyramid, the yeah. actual starship itself. They filmed all the model effects at a different location. I say that's where the earthquake happened. Uh, they actually did have insurance. <laughs> hmm. All they lost was time and uh, the effort required to repair all the damage before they moved to another location. Yeah, because we get um, Kowalski and all that retreat back into the into the pyramid because of the uh, sandstorm. And this is where that line's dropped. I think it's uh, Freddy says, why can't we just dial somewhere else? And Kowalski says they can't open a gate because they may end up in the vacuum of space. Now, I don't know if that's hinting that it's possible to go somewhere else or they just don't know how it works, so they don't want to try it. They're probably making the assumption that a different address would lead them to a different place. But like you yeah. say, they don't really specify it. I think this is basically a B to make Ferretti look a bit like an idiot. Yeah. Because they, they call him on it. How many places can this go to? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> How many combinations are there? Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, at the moment, one by the looks of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It defies belief that they required Daniel to figure out this last one. 
Yeah. <laughs> Try every symbol on this on this gate and see if it works. It's like you're trying to break a four-digit combination. You just keep going, wouldn't you? I'll get there mm. in the end. Yeah, it's not going to lock you out after the third yeah. try, and it doesn't work. Even in 94, we had computer programs to do that. <laughs> so we get Ra's ship land. Yeah, the big model sequence. This was where I blew my speaker up. I may have turned the volume up because the sound is so good. <laughs> I've got one note here for that. Megazord, question mark. It reminds me of that from Power Rangers. <laughs> Just the way it sort of it segments itself and uh, you get all the steam blow out. It's almost as if the power conduits line up and they're drawing power from the actual stone pyramid rather than mm. from the ship. But it does look spectacular. I do like how they updated and had the attack in the series. They just sort of made it a bit more ship-like. Just a floating pyramid. That's one thing. When the pyramid ship you know, opens up its side panels, then it looks truly alien. This is where we get one of the first major fight scenes. They chose to film this point of view, mainly because after the actors, the uh, you know, horse guards, got geared up in the costumes, they realised they were not very manoeuvrable. So they couldn't have a running fight between all these columns. So they simply just shot point of view, and it worked very well. Very suspenseful. Yeah. It's dark, so maybe these guards have some sort of uh, infrared, ultraviolet, something like that in the helmets. Uh, you don't get a clear look of what they are right until the end, when bloody hell that looks good. As Andrew said earlier, the work they've done on the helmets, um, the, the animatronics having the, the heads tilt move, the wing, like the ear wings sort of raised lower when uh, something happens, just they must spend a lot of money on those. Well, that was it. They even went for the profile shot, so you'd got the, you know, the payoff of him turning around and looking at you. Yeah, just the way that eagle beak, <laughs> the eagle's head sort of, yeah, it, it turns first, then they turn. The taloned hand as well. Yep. Everything about it doesn't look practical. Obviously, it isn't, <laughs> but it looks impressive. The EMP Museum, or actually it's now the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle where I work in the sci-fi exhibit, we actually have one of the non-animatronic Anubis heads and, you know, just being able to, like, go and look and, and really, you know, even close up, the detail is, is absolutely stunning. That'd be worth a bit of money if it ever went on one of the auctions like, uh, well, I mean, Stargate do our proper auctions. We had one of those at the EMP while I worked there, and, and we actually sold off one of the gates. Ooh. <laughs> that was, you know, I went up to go look at it, and it was just, it was it was a little awe-inspiring. I wonder if that's the catalogue I've got, because they were selling the catalogues, even if you never didn't even go yeah. to the auction. Right, yeah. Big hardback catalogue. Huge it is. Full of stunning artwork and photographs. Right then, let's see. So the base camp has been totally destroyed. The soldiers captured. Ra is now on Abydos, even though we don't know it's called Abydos at the time. And we move back to the the city where Clarell is taking up smoking. <laughs> or not. Or not. Yeah. Would he let his son have a cigarette at, at this age? Or would he encourage it, thinking he'd make a man of you? I think it was actually just a moment of him trying to be diplomatic yeah <laughs> and he sees that scar is sort of following his every move so let's see where we can go with this when he makes a move towards the gun he acts very reactionally yeah yeah guns are dangerous get i'll point mine at you well you know <laughs> guns kids and jack are not, yeah. a, not a good combo he knows how dangerous they are but he's always pointing it at someone it made me wonder if at this point scar's father is already dead mm. because he does seem to latch on to jack very quickly Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, this whole village to raise a child approach is probably taken in this community. It makes me wonder if all the, the shepherd boys, you know, the actual young lads who look after the, the mastodias, are 
either orphans or just part of the tribe. Well, it's never explained here, but they've probably been taken as hosts. There is only raw. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yes, there's a lot you've got to remember. Doesn't doesn't really count yeah. in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The well, and you know, even later on, the, uh, the system lords did not like share power. I mean, it probably has been explained that in Stargate SG One, raw was the first. He made the discovery of a human host. He was the first to take it to realize that while the Unus was more powerful, it was more limited. Right. The human body was even more easily regenerated. Yeah. You could merge that with the movie and say, yeah, that would work as well here. And at some point, Ra discovered that he wasn't the last of his race. There were others out there and he brought them into the fold and they became the system lords, which in many ways is better than a big lake with these strange looking flying fish in it. (laughs) (laughs) That's rather a weak origin story. And how did these like flying eels in a lake become egomaniacal um, power? (laughs) (laughs) With fancy wardrobes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot we can criticize Stargate SG-1 for. There's a lot we can criticize every, every series for. Oh yeah. Benjamin of disbelief is. Yeah. (laughs) But from Jack and Skara, and we go with Sharae and Daniel into the catacombs, where we learn that before writing was abolished by Ra, these people actually kept pictorial records of their journey from Earth, whether they call the planet, to this, this world as slaves brought as miners. Mm. And Daniel starts to put the pieces together. Yeah, it learns how to speak the language here pretty quickly. I'll give him this because they say the point is Daniel knew the language, he just didn't know how to say it. Yeah, dead language. Yeah, what he says, he... He knows the consonants, but he doesn't know where the vowels go. And once she explains that to him, a few examples, he can see how the language is structured, and suddenly he's there, he understands it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, syntax and grammar are, you know, kind of <laughs> crucial for comprehension of, of any language. Yeah. We get a brief interlude with some of the uh, horse guards walking through the starship, the Great Pyramid, before we jump back to Jack looking for Daniel. And we get the... Uh, the humorous part of the movie, where he uh, calls him a dweeb, does the chicken impression, the sneezing impression, the Simon says. Yeah, his whole his whole demeanour changes here, and that's the comedic pardoning comes out. He sort of loses that gruff military man for about five seconds here, and it's, yeah. it's fun. Yeah, it is. We find the mastiffs are also bloodhounds. Yeah. <laughs> Very useful animal, this is. Good going through catacombs. <laughs> <laughs> They were a little worried when the uh, the horse, you know, took off in a gallop because it was only about a 20-feet corridor and a very oh. narrow corridor at that. And the horse, of course, couldn't sit where it was going. Straight through to sit. <laughs> yeah. Just hang on like... That is an incredibly well-trained horse. Yeah, yeah, it would be. I mean, you'd think it'd freak enough being indoors on a soundstage. But we go back to the catacombs. Uh, Jack finds Daniel and Charay very close together and he's probably immediately thinking all the wrong things. He's not in a very good mood anyway, but Daniel actually explains what's going on, beats Jack's interest a bit. We get a lot of exposition. As Brad said earlier on, the opening sequence originally wasn't there. This was all the uh, flashback we had. It is a bit abbreviated, but yeah. The rebellion on Earth that drove Ra to close the Stargate. Rebels close the Stargate. Ra had already got enough people, so he thought, sod them. Not going back there. I like I like sand. And they give him the, the old uh, Roswell Gray appearance. Yes, interesting choice, that. A little bit taller. Mind you, he looks a bit shriveled, so... <laughs> Kowalski finds a cartouche they're looking for. And once again, archaeologist's first sandstone. Couldn't be yeah. granite, could it? No. 
There was also a, uh, in that flashback scene towards the end where they show the rebellion on Earth, a lot of that footage is actually taken from the end of this film. <laughs> you see it later on replayed. Why not? There comes a point, no matter how much budget you've got, you've got to cut corners at some point. Yeah. Yes, they, uh, they have the six symbols, but not the final seventh symbol required to activate the gate. I don't know the point of origin. Although, in hindsight, pretty obvious when you think about it. Which one isn't on the gate? We'll get to that point when we get there. Very fancy uh, June sequence mm. as they run back to the pyramid and they get the first glimpse of the uh, the spaceship. Like I said, it looks fantastic on top of that pyramid. I was wondering why the pyramid was built so far away from the... Especially when all the sandstone, that's where the city is. You'd think the pyramid would be a little bit closer. I suppose he hasn't even been there that long for him to have mined all the deposits close to the pyramid yeah. and moved further afield. But at this point, we we assume that he put the Stargate there. He may have done, but then again, he may not have done. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but no question, the model of the spaceship really does look fantastic. It's hard to imagine it's a pyramid. How can you make that look good? But then again, you all the detail on it. It's like a bore cube. It's a cube. Right. No, it's a cube with stunning amount of detail. And you can keep zooming in on it. And the detail keeps going and going and going and going. Yeah. And these days, it'd just be CGI, and you go, oh, that looks pretty. Good work by the artist, but I've seen it all before. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one thing they said, you know, CGI, it could be months before you see any other finished product. Even a preliminary give you a good look. A model builder can knock something out within a week, pretty much the finished product. Right. Mm. So Jack, Daniel, I think Ferretti, Kowalski, they go into the pyramid looking for the rest of the squad. Uh, they have another run-in with some horse guards. They put up a little better fight than the original party did. Although, I've got to say them, staff weapons got a kick. They've got some power. They take chunks out of the building. Yeah, and they fray a few, a bit of a distance across the way too. Oh yeah, you get hit by one of them. It's not just a burn. They blow mm. a chunk out of you. They give Daniel a gun. Daniel gets a gun. <laughs> <laughs> How many times do you see an archaeologist with a gun? Uh, me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Indiana Jones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jack makes the beeline for the nuclear device, which has vanished, crimp into his plan, and we get to see the ring transporter. Again, a mechanical device, a little bit of CGI, a little bit of composite work. Looks fantastic. Great decision to port that over to the series. We get Anubis, the uh, head of the Horus Guard, beamed down. A little bit more ornate armour. If you like, the uh, rank-and-file guards are wearing mostly white. Anubis is... Fully decked out, lots of jewels, lots of fancy gold-plated and silver-plated armour. Does look impressive. Daniel is gun arm shaking like nobody's business, <laughs> which is understandable. I'm pretty sure he's, he may never have handled a gun before. And Jack pretty much realises it's a no-win scenario. Tells him to put his gun down and let themselves be taken prisoner. Yeah. Weird um, sound effect whenever they use the staff weapon as a pub. Sort of like a zapping sound every time it hits someone, like it's prod or something. Little charge setting in the end. Yeah. Like a yeah. cattle prod. Could be, yeah. It's rather annoying how how easy the soldiers are taken out, but then again, these guards are probably raised from birth, although it makes you wonder who's doing the training, where do they get... Because not as if they're <laughs> fighting equivalent, well-trained people. They're used to being using terror as, as a weapon, dominance. Does the ship have a gym or a shooting range? <laughs> Yes, I imagine the training process is is rather brutal. You know, failure is not tolerated. Oh, that's it. Only the strongest survive. Yep. Well, now we get to the uh, 
the sides of the top of the pyramid open. Open in the sun room. <laughs> Greatest sunroom ever. It isn't it. I mean, look at the polish on that floor. You know, it's a that takes some doing it. Of course, if you've got slaves, it's not that big a deal. Well, yeah. I'm a dust Nazi, so I'm I'm seeing dust everywhere by the time they leave. <laughs> you walk around just with a pair of white gloves, just just when you want to actually smear a surface, just to yeah. <laughs> All those ornate statues and that. Yeah, it's, it's it is a stunning set. Vertical, huge height to them. They didn't want to be confined by a roof, obviously. Yeah, very high ceilings. Yeah. It's probably better to be able to have a camera high up and look down than low down and look up. It kind of gives you this sense of vastness to a room. Yeah. Some of the, the statues, huge scarabs, which they implied were the basis for the uh, for the Death Glider design. Oh, okay, yep. Which is uh, convenient because Ra sends two of his Death Gliders to attack the city. <laughs> the cockpits have no windows. I know. <laughs> That's bizarre, isn't it? You know, basically you're hanging on, you know, if you don't want to fall off one of them. I understand they've got the helmets on. Yeah, it's not as if something comes in and closes over your shoulders. It mustn't be a high-velocity fighter. Definitely not space-capable. Not at this point, no. Again, a mixture, predominantly model work, a little bit of CGI. But the whole attacking the city sequence was added after the fact. Originally, they were going to just jump straight to the aftermath. So when Skara returned, they just saw all the dead. But they felt they needed, they needed some of the well, not it'd be wrong to say they needed to add a bit of violence to the movie, but they needed to see the consequences of harboring these people. Yeah. To be fair, it was a good sequence, some nice special effects, some nice, you know, visual effects, explosions. But the Death Glider isn't really a ground attack vehicle. You have you have to be pointing down for those laser cannons <laughs> to hit something. <laughs> you know, half a dozen Horus guards could have probably done just as much damage. Like we get Ra come out here too. Make them all kneel before him. I love how the uh, the guard swipes at Jack's leg with the staff and clearly misses, yet Jack goes down. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? Again, like, you sort of got to act off the guard because he can't see what he's doing. We also get the reveal of the two main guards, Anubis and uh, Horus, wasn't it, the second guard. Anubis is played by Carlos Luchu and Horus played by Jimon Honso, two actors that have gone on to bigger and better things. Both... Interesting looking people. Really, I do like about Stargate is that, I've said it before, the broad spectrum of races and colours for the people who are playing the parts. It would have been easy, especially with it filming in America, to cast all white actors. Well, wasn't that a complaint of Gods of Egypt that he'd done? <laughs> and Prince of Persia. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, it's kind of hard to buy Christian Bale as, a, um, as an <laughs> Egyptian ruler. But we also have all the kid servants. I can't remember where... This was explained somewhere, but I can't remember where. I don't know if it was just if something happened to his host body, he had another strong young child to go into or something. Well, the commentary, they imply that Ra picks the most beautiful children from, from his tribes and raises them as his own personal guards and servants. Okay. Obviously not from birth, because if you can tell what <laughs> a baby's going to look like in 20 years, you're doing well. It's going to have a good time sweeping the floors too. So. Yeah, exactly. This is hard work raising these kids. I'm going to have to get slaves to raise the slaves. Yeah. At some point, you know, maybe before puberty, you know, he chooses some children and they leave the families to become his. And they are the ones he trusts most implicitly with his weapons, with his technology, because they are totally loyal to him. Yep. And that's exactly why when Jack makes his move, Daniel gets shot. Well done, Daniel. Daniel dies. Well done, Daniel. <laughs> and that's why Jack... Simply can't fire. 
A, the children, and B, he must have been thinking about his own son at that moment. Yeah. That's all the delay it took. Anubis got off his backside and did his job. Not exactly the finest secret service. No. Ra could probably do better. Well, you know, he'd gotten complacent. That's it. When nobody else has got a gun, what do you have to worry about? Right. <laughs> <laughs> when I ripped the me DVD copy to watch, I um, neglected to include subtitles. So this whole... Oh. <laughs> yeah, I remember certain parts of it. I remember sort of sending the bomb, although that comes later. Yeah, I, I remember parts of it. Not having any subtitles was a bit hard. I remember watching an online version of this film at one point, and yeah, it didn't have any of the uh, the subtitles for, for Ra's speech. And so I'm going and uh, looking up the script. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that makes me wonder. Obviously, the theoretical cut would have had the uh, translation on the screen, wouldn't it? Yes. But when they when they put them on um like D V D and stuff like that, then sometimes they're not hard coded in. Ah, uh, okay, yep. Yeah. The discussions between the natives and Daniel, they aren't subtitles. Yeah. But that's sort between of raw is between the natives it's sort of justified because you're sort of trying to learn as well yeah. as Daniel is. Yeah, you imagine that raw maybe even speaking a more formal language. You know, his language hasn't deviated at all because he's the only one speaking it. Whereas the, the natives over a thousand years may have drifted slightly more, you know, more slang, more colloquialisms. Right. He's got a pretty good uh, deep tone to it. Yeah, it's an interesting voice, isn't it? Interesting how they do it. Jay Davidson, he had a lot of trouble with it because the language has been invented, but it is based on ancient Egyptian or as close as they think it was spoken. But it's almost impossible to learn because... It doesn't come naturally. They use cue cards. It was the only way to do it. <laughs> they tried an earpiece, but halfway through filming one scene, uh, Jay simply couldn't hear what the guy was saying. Uh -huh. So they went with cue cards, and it worked. When the actor doesn't know what the saying means, it's yeah. difficult for him to actually put the emotion in it that you need. Right. Rory's is very flat, but he's got an edge to it. There's a malevolence there. You know, there's a superiority, condescension to it. But you still got to know when to make that implied. It really does come across that Ra is dangerous. He is a bit of a megalomaniac. He really does consider humans beneath him. Missing the subtitles. Is there? Does he say something here that um, warrants or propositions Daniel to kill the others for what we get in the next scene? Because at the moment, because Daniel's lying dead on the floor. Oh, okay. Yep, he hasn't revived him yet. Yep, yeah. Okay. Ra bends down, sees the amulet looks at it, and I think that's when he decides he's going to revive him because he wants to know where that came from. Why do you have that? Not, I've been looking for that for years. <laughs> he would know he left it on Earth, I suppose, too. Probably assume that there were a lot of stuff he didn't get to take with him. Yeah. He'd probably want to know, are you from Earth? Did you come through the Stargate? There may be, obviously, there may be a once connected with the, the Great Pyramid. He might be able to access the, the gate systems and know somebody came through, where they came through. None of that is explained. Well, they're obviously not local either. Different speech, different weapons, different dress. Yeah. The fact that Daniel has got that amulet, he recognises it. He's the person I want to talk to, and mm. I can bring him back. We get introduced to the sarcophagus, which, again, looks spectacular and puts the big golden block to shame. Moves a lot better too, a lot cleaner. And it was a ridiculously complicated mechanical device. So much so that uh, Roland actually got in to prove to Jay that he was safe. <laughs> it is cosy in there. Yeah. And Daniel wakes up, meets Ra's pussycat, 
<laughs> okay, I uh, never really expect to see. I can't imagine Raw taking a pussycat, but why not? They were revered. That must have come from Colonel of Truth, so I can't really criticise it. I think this is where Raw has his big discussion with Daniel. Yeah. Not too pleased about him being there. A big fancy dressing sequence where we kind of see how Raw controls his people. All these young children, you know, the dressing him, putting his robes on, all his jewellery, ridiculously suspect. He praises Daniel for his people, harnessing the power of the Atom, then revealed, oh, he's got all Daniel's books as well. Okay. Yes. Don't know if you can read English, but he's got them. Mm. And that's when he reveals that he's going to send the bomb back with uh, some of the uh, mineral, which isn't named. No. And he's also incredibly petulant in this scene as well. Hmm. Yeah, and this is where he also suggests to Daniel that unless he goes and, and kills his colleagues, that he'll basically kill Daniel. Kill everybody that's seen Daniel on the yeah. planet. Yeah, yep. which basically that is the entire city. And I assume that this isn't the only mining facility on this planet. There are, there are other you know enclaves dotted about. Mm -hmm. He can afford to destroy one community to safeguard his, uh, his cover story. Mm-hmm. Because while the people revere him as a god, he is pretty much untouchable. They wouldn't even consider rising against him. Right. Although it's interesting, they did on Earth. What provoked that? Now, SG-1 obviously gave us a story to explain that. We can't consider that. So how did the rebellion on Earth start? And I wonder, I wonder if at some point we see Ra kill one of his own men, one of his own gods. And I wonder if... That happened on Earth, and maybe one of his Horus guards looked at that and thought, if you can do that to one of our brothers, who maybe didn't do anything wrong, what sort of god is he? Well, I think they also intimate with the you know the banning of writing is that, I mean, obviously education is, uh, is the greatest weapon against tyranny, you know, intelligence and, and discourse. And so in suppressing writing and the keeping of history, you know, he, he maintains that hold. Yeah, it doesn't want history to repeat itself. Right. The tales of the people, especially on, on this planet, where they have got the pictograph history of their beginnings. Now, my guess is only a few people actually understand that or know about that. I don't think those catacombs are common knowledge. Mm. Right. You know, at a certain point when somebody becomes an elder, all is revealed to them. But even so, they are so vastly outnumbered. And the rank and file, the average man in the, the street believes Ra is their god. Anyhow, as you said, Daniel is given an ultimatum. Prove to the people that I am your god. Bow down before me. Kill your friends. If you don't, I'll kill everybody. So we get this big, huge location shot with all the extras back. Finds a lot. Same disjointed when you didn't know what was actually being spoken. <laughs> In the finery, Ra walks out to the great temple, great pyramid, surrounded by his gods and his retinue of children. Maybe some of those children are the daughters and sons of some of the people in the crowd. Not quite sure. Mm. An outpost on another planet. What's the point of being a spaceship if all you do is orbit the same planet? Well, he come from somewhere. He must do. We have the military lining up, ready to be executed. Daniel walks down the steps with the staff weapon in hand, and he looks into the crowd, and he spots Gara thanks to the reflection of the lighter. Have they had any reflective surfaces? I suppose there's the gong, but... Did they have mirrors or glass where they could have done this or known to do this previously? I don't think so, you know. Although I'm amazed that nobody else in yeah. in Ra's retinue looked at and thought, what's that? 
Hello. We're all standing behind, behind him. And open your robes and show this big metallic-looking device long over your shoulder as well. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you have a gun. Do you know how to use it? Yeah, because every time you touched it, Jack took it off you. Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of convenient. They just point it in the air and pull the trigger and not point it anywhere else. They do know that pointing it at people must be bad. Yeah, well, all they've seen is when Jack uh, fired into the ground, so... Yeah. You'd hope that Jack left the safety on, at least. We've seen in modern movies, people trying to fire a gun and say, the safety's on. How do you, tw- how do you turn it off? Yeah. And raw, body double, because the mask is so big and heavy, <laughs> you can't see out of it. Yep. Jay had trouble walking out of the pyramid and down the steps, so they got a stuntman to do it, just in case. <laughs> oh, I think, yeah, if you tripped and went down, that thing had the weight to do some damage. Yeah. This sounds like a brilliant gig to have for Jay. Oh, I don't fancy doing that. Okay, no problem. <laughs> Not going to take out my nipple rings. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Shoot around it. And I'm going to need a million dollars. No problem, sir. Cash or check. Daniel turns around, fires and shoots one of the... He shoots the floor. Oh, yeah, in front of him, yeah. <laughs> the movie could be over if you'd have hit raw. Yeah. Well, he is an archaeologist, not, not a gunner. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's the first time he's used that weapon. Okay, well... Which, again, how many shots is he going to take till his friends? <laughs> yeah, well, at least four. Yeah. <laughs> Can you line up in a row, please? Yeah, there's going to be some screaming and shouting as they get maimed before they actually get killed. <laughs> <laughs> I maimed you. Let me try again, please. Sorry, I, I, I just clipped you on that one. Hold on. <laughs> Can you stop screaming? It's putting me off. Anyhow, all hell breaks loose. The uh, the guys fire the guns into the crowd. Well, no, not into the crowd. Above the crowd. The horse guards fire into the crowd, so people are getting killed. There is a price to pay for the rescue of the soldiers. There's a lot of bendy staff weapons in this thing. During all the chaos, Jack and uh, Daniel jump on a mastage, and off they ride into the sunset. Unfortunately, which I think, okay, you've got away, but everybody else, yeah. they're running for their lives. Why didn't they send the death gliders out? Oh, the two pilots are probably dressed up in the finery shooting at you. Yeah, they're on the ground. Yeah. I think this was another extended sequence, wasn't it, where uh, Jack and Daniel end up getting caught in a sandstorm? Yeah. Not quite sure why they put this back in, because it's not that interesting. Although, I suppose, a bit more bonding between the two men. Slowly starting to grow on each other. Fortunately for them, the shepherd boys find them and take them to uh, a retreat in the middle of the desert. This may be a bit out of the way. They meet up with some more of the uh, the village, the village people. The village people, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> the, the locals. Seems to be an awful lot of guns around at the moment. Some of the guys have already been killed, so their weapons are floating free. Kowalski is having the time of his life. He's leading a rebellion. He's up for this. Jack isn't. He gets rather annoyed. Starts pulling the weapons away from the kids. I think this is where Daniel also finds out that he's married. Yes, and we get a love scene. It was fairly well done as well. whole village thinks, you know, she's a married woman now. That was a ceremony. Her father, we assume that's her father gave her to Daniel as a bride. Uh, they spent the night together, you know, proof of the deed wasn't required. They woke in the next morning, done, job done, married. Daniel didn't realise this, so, uh, yeah, oops, never mind. Mm-hmm. She understands this. She's, she almost apologises for not being good enough for him. You know, you didn't want me. Yeah. See, Daniel's thinking, I'm not going to get any better. <laughs> <laughs> She's nervous. Her eyes are wide open when she kisses him. Uh, she gets into it pretty quick, I'll give her that. Gara's watching the dirty little boy. <laughs> Although, I think at this point, he's, he's going to turn out to be a decent guy. You know, he closes the curtain and it gives him some privacy. Yeah, yeah. sort of cuts away for it pretty quickly. Meanwhile, back at the pyramid, Ra is not a happy bunny. He's got his 
surviving Horus gods on display. I'm using Horus as a generic term, but Horus is a specific individual. It's the eagle one, isn't it? Yeah. Horus and Anubis are both there. You've got some of the uh, regular gods. One of them's going to get it. He uh, gets his hand device out, walks up to him, shock blast, throws him across the room. Then he gets the hand device and basically turns his brain into mush. Melts yeah. his brain, yeah. little bit of blood comes out of the ears and the nose. And that's what I thought. You're looking at Anubis, and for a minute there, you're thinking, you look at him and thinking, he knows this is wrong. He knows his man didn't do anything wrong and he's having to die for it. Yeah. And I wonder if that was one of the root causes of the rebellion on Earth. Somebody from within the trusted circle. It's got to be somebody from within to make the move, to get the weapons. I'd nearly see it as more of something happened and they say in Ra bleed or something like that. How can a god be like us or something? If you know he's got that power, then you can't really go against that power. But... Hey, that's Star Trek. That was when Captain Kirk... I'm thinking, I know that from something. I know that from something else, but I didn't... <laughs> what does God need with a starship? <laughs> I know that one. Ra really does a number on on his guard. That's, uh, he's already lost a few. He's lost another one now. Uh, pretty much uh, puts all the, uh, the onus on uh, Anubis and Horus. Do a better job. Gar and Daniel here, because we find out in cave drawings that he's doing the seventh symbol. Yeah, and this is what I meant by pretty obvious, really, in hindsight. The Earth symbol is a pyramid with a single moon. This symbol is a pyramid with three moons. At the very least, hazard a guess. Yeah, I suppose they drop early when the map sends the photos back that the symbols are different on the gate than the Earth gate. But Yeah. You did on a quick look at the gate, look at all the symbols, and did we see some sort of DHD? That's a note for later at the end. <laughs> there is nothing... <laughs> Yeah, how exactly are the darling back? But you need to realign the Stargate. Well, really, it's just aligning it because you haven't had it open to go back before. There's no DHT, there's no gate room. You know, made fun of SG-1 using some of the same graphics. But SG-1 had to explain the mechanics of the system, how it worked. Right. Mm -hmm. The movie really glossed over that to a great extent. When they're dialing the gate, we get to see the camera of the chevrons locking. There's no camera attached to that gate, so I don't know where that is. <laughs> and that, yeah, that main chevron locking sequence is used through season one and into season two, where the chevron split open and isn't what's on the TV gate. They did have to, I suppose, being a series, they had the time to explain in certain episodes how things worked. Um, the DHD was thrown out there straight into the pilot. I don't know how Scar has seen that to know to draw it. Yeah. If he's just drawing a picture of the moons or you can imagine at some point every child does a secret run to the great pyramid yeah. as a dare if nothing else the kids all the catacombs no matter what the situation yeah kids my guess is it wasn't if you tell me that sandstone broke in the last 10 years nah. <laughs> my guess is that he's been in the gate room at some point you would do well, a dare you know, to go in there just, yeah he could be just drawing a symbol that's on the gate and conveniently it's the one they need like jackson's jumping straight to Oh, that's the one we need is probably just as absurd, but... He's probably thinking, don't look too surprised, because they'll ask you, shouldn't you have figured that out? <laughs> no, nobody pointed out, that looks remarkably similar, Daniel. Does it? I've never noticed. I love the expression as though Quartz comes along. What are you doing? Oh, I found it. We can go home. Brilliant. But first, a rebellion. <laughs> there happens to be a ship parked above it. <laughs> we need to get... We've got to get rid of the alien with the, the nuclear weapon and everything first. So we're back at the, uh, at the mine. One of the guards is doing his normal whip with the peasants and getting them to work harder. Approaches one of the guys that's on his back, intending to impose a bit of discipline. And he gets a bit of a surprise. 
pretty good moment that was. Oh, that's when they the convoy takes the mineral to the pyramid for Ra. And they they search them. First off, they need to get the mineral. So Jack kills one of the Horus guards, who happens to be Horus. Deactivates the mask and. Well, that's it. He thinks he's killed oh, one, yeah. one of the gods. Yeah. You know, he doesn't realize the people don't realize that they're just them. You know, normal humans under all the the mechanics and the armor. So it comes as a great shock that who knows they might even know him. Mm, right. Yeah. Well, Bob. I wonder where he went. <laughs> Always was a bit of a bully. The real situation blows away generations of mysticism and blind faith. Mm. You know, terror. The light's been shone on John and. And it's quite remarkable, the uh, turnabout, you know, some of the lads, shepherd boys, they've been in it right from the start, probably because Kara is kind of their ringleader. Anyway, the caravan with the mineral trudges along the desert. Ra looks out of his window, sees it coming. His plan is coming together, quite happy again. Sends the nuclear weapon down into the gate room with a couple of guards. The caravan approaches the pyramid. The guards come to investigate and they start removing the hoods. Mm. where we get another kind of comedic nod from Kurt Russell. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yep. <laughs> Prize. I love it, the expression, the little twitch on his face. How are you doing? And just opens up on full automatic. And Daniel still can't hit anything with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the lads who have never even seen a gun until the day before are doing better than Daniel. Yeah. yeah. Why do they keep Something giving else... Daniel a gun? Yeah. <laughs> Something else carried over into the series. Yeah. It takes him a while before he can shoot anything. The humans have got a slight advantage this time, but when the gunfire erupts, Kowalski and the, the others rush towards the door. And this guard was a genius. He fired his energy weapon underneath the door, which exploded just out, sending shrapnel into the, the crowd that was running towards it. Yeah. He deserves a gold star from Ra for that. Pretty strategic. It was. It was genius. Quick thinking. It'd have been easy just to open fire and waste, waste the weapon against the door as it fell. But he gave it a second's thought and he took the shot. He might have killed one or two in that time, but others would have been able to get under there. Eventually, yeah. We get the big battle sequence. Gl Death gliders launch again. They do some strafing runs outside. The explosions in the sand look fantastic. Practical set, practical explosions. You can't beat it. Right. Yeah. You get the craftsmen who are working with explosives, who know how to lay explosives, exact amount, exact timing, make a real explosion look fantastic, coordinated with stuntmen who are risking life and limb for our entertainment. Yeah, they're getting the sand blown on them. They're in there. <laughs> yeah, Kowalski and his guys are stuck outside under fire from the death gliders. No uh, surface-to-air missiles, unfortunately. Yeah, not this time. More arms fire. It's not going well at all. Inside the temple, Jack runs down to the gate room, finds a nuclear weapon that the guards have left there, begins to set up the timer on it. Seven minutes. Interesting. Seven minutes. Sure, okay. yeah. There must be some significance to that. Don't know what it is. Certainly more than seven minutes left in the movie. What was there? Was the normal cut about seven minutes left? There wasn't anything else that added here, was there? So we still get the uh, the rings come down with the other warrior. There's a long credit sequence with the movie, I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> Sharae, she gets uh, shot by one of the guards. Daniel actually manages to hit him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Needed the proper motivation. That's it. That's the key to everything. When you really have to do it. So we've got a nuclear device on countdown. The ring transporter activates and Anubis appears. Because it's a two-way transporter, Daniel and Sharae beam up. Which they didn't know that. <laughs> he could have got crushed. Yeah, he could have done. There was nothing to indicate it was two-way. Mm. 
especially when it was said earlier that the gate doesn't work that way. So, well, again, we'll let it pass because it, it works very well. It gives yeah. Daniel the opportunity to take Shara to the sarcophagus. Although, truth be told, she isn't a big woman, but Daniel looks like he's having trouble carrying her. Yeah, his back is straight as a ruler, which means he's putting a lot of effort to maintain that straightness. If I even slouch for one bit, I'm dropping her. <laughs> <laughs> And just because you're put in the sarcophagus doesn't mean you know how to use it. Yes. Fortunately for them, automatic. <laughs> automatic, yeah. yeah. Open, closed. <laughs> and it works really quick, too. Like, that seven-minute countdown's going, and she's in and out of there pretty quick. Yeah, so Gora as Chlorel, he took nearly a full day, didn't he? Yeah. That was only a gunshot. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, Anubis and Jack are having a, a good man-to-man, hand-to-hand fight. Uh, he gets to switch off the uh, headgear, which probably saves the production thousands of dollars in CGI work. Also makes the fight more, you know, sort of pull the cameras back a bit too. Yeah, pretty good fight. He, of course, we've seen that Jack noticed the activation device on the uh, wrist plate. Best line in the movie. Give my regards to King Tut, so. <laughs> Ah, yes. <laughs> Delivered perfectly as the ring slammed down into him, severing his arm and severing his head. Pleasant. Nice way to go. <laughs> Outside, they're in kind of a foxhole. <laughs> I love the fact that the kids are wearing body armour as well. Nick that off the dead soldiers. <laughs> yeah, someone's <laughs> lost it. It's the only place I could get it from. Not going well at all. There's running out of ammunition. Jack is finished with Anubis. Daniel has got Shari out of the sarcophagus. Clock is ticking. People are meeting up. What's going to happen next? Freddy surrenders. That's right, yeah. That's the only thing he can do. They've got no weapons. Live another day, yeah. Yeah. You could argue that he's given it a bit of thought. We stand a chance if we get these two on the ground. We definitely don't stand a chance if they stay in the air. Yeah. Daniel and Shari have beamed down. Jack tries to turn the nuclear device off. The timer doesn't stop. It speeds up. It has got the last laugh by the looks of it. It does. It does get faster, doesn't it? It is. It's double timing. It's not <laughs> ticking down as it should be. The two guards depart their ships, approach the peasants. They are going to execute them. No ifs or buts. The staff weapons are charged. And who should come across the sand dunes, Kesuf, and what looks like the entire population of this planet? The guards are suddenly, oh shit. Yes. Oh dear me. We've got a uh, hell of a planetary communication system. <laughs> <laughs> Beauty of this, when they film this first, a bunch of the extras ran towards the wrong camera. <laughs> and they had to shoot the whole thing the next day. Oh, no. Luckily, they had sandstorm overnight, which cleared the entire dune. <laughs> that was what Dean actually filmed. And give it credit to these guards. They're going to have the go. Have you seen the movie Zulu? No. 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 British movie about a famous defeat in Africa. A handful of British soldiers against a whole Zulu nation. This is what it was. Basically, half a dozen men with guns being charged by a thousand men with spears. Guess who won? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a no-win scenario. These guys are mobbed. They are torn to pieces. Even, as Brad says, the staff weapons seem to get bendy after a while. We do get a couple of staff weapon blasts outside in the desert. That's uh, The close-up of staff weapon firing is clearly from inside the ship. You can see the, <laughs> the marble behind the figure. But, um, yeah, and then he decides to leave. Yeah. We're taking off. He's got no more weapons or warriors. We're just out of here. He could, of course, just turn the ring transporter off. Nobody's going to get into that ship. But it makes you wonder, is that ship armed? Perhaps it isn't. Well, he obviously doesn't assume that anyone else knows how to use the rings. Yeah, or perhaps he's got orbital weaponry. Fire from orbit, wipe, wipe this scourge from the planet and start again. 
Jack's got a nasty mark on his head. He's still trying. 40 seconds. Wow, that was a slow minute. Yeah. <laughs> the timing was all over the place. It is a bit, yeah. Shall raise up. The building's shaking. <laughs> the two guys turn to each other. Got an idea. Same time. As they look at the nuclear device and the transporter. Great. And the look on Raw's face is actually priceless because he knows what's coming. Yeah. It was interesting that he's heaving like he was injured or something here, but it might be just he's very angry. He may be losing control. They wondered what sort of possession is it? Yeah. Total, or is he always having to hold the young man's consciousness? Well, seeing all the locals rebel sort of might the young man's in there, give him more strength to say, no, get out. Could be. It's strange, though. It looks like he tries to use his mind powers to actually disarm the weapon rather than it's a pity he didn't have a code he could put in or something. Seven seconds. Well, yeah. (laughs) he, He can't do anything but look. Apophis, of course, he'd have a personal shield. And the energy blast would be so violent, the shield would protect him. Granted, he'd run out of air pretty quick, just floating in orbit, but he'd be all right. And now, of course, we get to the final scene. Forget the fact that a lot of people have just died. Right, yeah. Okay, the rebellion, victorious. You know, the dictator is down. We're going to salute you. <laughs> we get the shepherd boys. There's not many left. Kowalski and Ferretti is still around. No time for a burial. How the hell did they get that gate open? <laughs> <laughs> it's rather a cliched ending, to be honest. Even down to the kiss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although Kasuf really throws himself into the role as, as a chief cheerleader. <laughs> Although many would say he was a collaborator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The leader of a local population that's been subjugated often gets tarred with the same brush. Yeah. And we get the the, the final scene in the gate room. Jack and Neil saying goodbye to his <laughs> almost adopted son. Mm. There's a definite relationship there. We get Ferretti, who says, I knew you'd do it all along, even though it was him that <laughs> threw all his books away. Kowalski, good man. And great chemistry between Jack and Daniel. Yeah. These two respect each other now, even to the point where, you sure you're staying? And he looks over at Jarret, uh, yes. <laughs> and if they showed Daniel had family back on Earth, this might have been unbelievable if he'd have stayed. Yeah. Got nothing on Earth here. He's got a lifetime's experience of exploring this culture. Mm-hmm. Beautiful wife who seems to adore him for some reason. <laughs> Pray he never breaks his glasses. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's sort of, um, he was a joke to academia back home too, so he had no... I mean, that's the thing, is that, you know, everything, all of his theories have just been proven, but there's no way for him to prove it. <laughs> no. And how do, you, how do you go back? Once you do go back, how do you live after this experience? Yeah. He probably signed a very extensive non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> you know, and this is CIA, take you away, and then you never see light again if you say anything. Right. Yeah. Or what's the point? There would be an unfortunate accident, and then proof found that you'd made it up all along. Although we do close, of course, with Jack saying, see you around. Mm. Which, in hindsight, obviously they were planning on another movie. Or at least leaving the, the door open. Yeah. Pilot did a good job of sort of tying the both together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they never got around to doing the second movie, so let's do it on TV instead. They they really should have hit while the iron was hot. Mm. This movie, estimated budget, just a little over $50 million. It grossed $196 million worldwide. At the time, that is a hit. You quadruple mm. your money. Marketing back then would have been a pale shadow of what it is these days. Yeah, right. $71 million US, that means $125 million overseas, 196 global. 
yeah, you you make another movie. You make it yeah. quick. But both Roland and Dean had other other movies they wanted to make, and you can't really argue the fact that ID Four came along not long after. Yeah, yeah. You can't say, well, what did you make after that? Granted, a lot of the movies may not be great movies. You know, Ten Thousand BC. I think we'll forget about that. Well, that, and I suppose that's back onto the the resurgence. You go into these movies sort of expecting what they are like. A lot of spectacle, not much plot or character development. It's sort of interesting now what they want to do. If you turn around and say James Spader back and Kurt Russell back to do the so-called sequel start to the new trilogy or whatever they're planning, getting past actors back isn't always going to make something successful. Just look at Indiana Jones 4 and other <laughs> other movies that have sort of brought original actors back. The new Ghostbusters bringing the original cast back. Not as bad, but... yeah. Could have worked if they'd have gone down a different path. Yeah. If they'd have gone for a sequel, hand over, old to new. That would be a problem if, if they had made Stargate. You would have alienated fans of the TV show who view the movie as just the movie. At this point, there's more fans of the television series than there are of just the film. Yeah. There are no conventions for Stargate the movie. Right. It amazes me how, in the eyes of a lot of fans, there is a big split between the movie and the the uh, series, like, yes, you can be a fan of one or the other. There's very few that actually like both. You're either an RDA fan, you come on for the series, or you're you're there for Kurt and that back in the original. Yeah. Well, that was one of the great behind-the-scenes when Kurt Russell came onto the set of SG-1. <laughs> I say, though, I, I love the movie. Without the movie, the movie sold me on watching the TV show. Right. Yeah. I was there for the pilot. Yeah, I was yeah. there for the pilot because of the movie, not because of RDA or Anyone else that was in it? I'm 99.99% sure I had Stargate on VHS. I know I had it on Laserdisc. I currently have the Laserdisc framed on my wall. <laughs> I've got three Blu-ray versions of the movie. Yeah. Wow. Well, they keep bringing out such lovely covers, and the last one was a steel book, <laughs> which was, right. was gorgeous. So I had to have that, even though it's the same bloody disc inside. Right. Yeah. Pretty sure I have the DVD, but if I do, it's in a, it's in a cardboard box in the loft. Yeah, but like I say, I, I enjoyed watching Stargate this week, even though I didn't get to do it all in one go. I enjoyed listening to the commentary. I enjoy a lot of what Roland Emmerich produces, even though the best you can say, or maybe the worst you can say, it's on a blockbuster movie. Right. It serves a purpose. don't have to be great art. If it's entertaining, that's all you want. Dean Devlin's I love watching The Librarians and Leverage, which he, was, which he produced, entertaining TV series. Not exactly intellectual, but great fun. And sometimes that's all you want. Yep. And as I said earlier, there's the score, there's five scores I'll listen to on a weekly basis, and this is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, great work all around. Okay then, folks, that was our look at uh, Stargate the movie. If you have any comments about our discussion, anything you think we didn't expand upon or missed out, feel free to get in touch with us. This was a bonus episode of The Gatecast, released on New Year's Eve 2016. If you do want to get in contact with us, you can find us on Facebook and Google+. We are also on Twitter, at The Gatecast, which is one word. Our main website, which has had a few problems recently, is now back to normal and can be found at gatecast.co.uk. And our email address is gatecastpodcast at gmail.com. We are also carried on iTunes and Stitcher Internet Radio. And we have an additional RSS feed which can be manually added to a podcatcher that carries links to every episode we've released so far. 
Next week, we are going to be looking at the premiere episode of Travellers, which has recently been released on Netflix worldwide. Chances are, if you like sci-fi, you've already watched it. They have no idea what it's like for us. Their bodies, our minds. Listen to me. This is all happening for a reason. You have no idea where I'm from. We're here to save them. We are their only hope. I see we all made it. Let's begin. Travelers. So join us next week. Enjoy the, the new year, or just this time of the year. Gentlemen, if you would, your contact info. Uh, yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Andrew Wonders, and SoundCloud.com, forward slash Andrew Wonders, all one word. TransformersCCA.com, that's where... All the info is Transformers Collectors Club Australia, little club I'm running down here, and uh, you can contact me through there if you need to. Andrew, Brad, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me on, as always. It's been good to look back. I definitely wanted Andrew back on, because uh, he isn't down for any more Stargate Universe. This is true. <laughs> oh. Right then, guys, thank you very much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your, well, Saturday for Andrew and Sunday for Brad. I am off to watch... Jurassic World with Riff Tracks commentary. Nice. Nice. Right then, folks, thank you very much for listening to uh, the Gatecast. Join us next week. Uh, But until then, I've been Mike. I've been Brad. I've been Andrew. (laughs) Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. You won't think anything so easy would be so difficult. (laughs) I've got to wait for Alan to go first. Yeah.